If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Some of you that are a part of our Wednesday night Bible studies, either at 4 o'clock or at 6 o'clock, are going to recognize this passage real quickly because it's the passage we've talked about for the last two weeks. And let me just tell you... um, that there was an undeniable impression from the Lord that I ought to preach this passage this week to you. And so, uh, if you've been a part of these Wednesday night Bible studies, our time together, you just kind of consider you've already had the pretest and you're getting to go through the lesson again. Alright? Now, if I were to ask you, what is the book of Revelation about? If, if you were to have one word to describe the book of Revelation, when I say, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, what do you imagine, or what is the word that comes to mind? End times. Jesus. Confusion. Worry. Oh, He's going to tell us everything that's ever going to happen, right? That's not what we're going to do. Here's what I want you to understand today about the book of Revelation. Is if you were to take and look at the book of Revelation, it is a book that has within it numerous examples of worship. Over and over and over again, worship is a theme of this book. And what we're going to do today is to talk a little bit about that, because here's the cool thing about what happens. And we're going to actually do two chapters. Now, some of you are a little concerned because you thought, man, that was short music, and he's doing two chapters, and these are hard chairs, all right? I get some amens there, all right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna spend a lot of time in each chapter, but we're going to see how these two chapters together summarize what worship should be about. And Revelation is one of those books that people don't often go to to find out about worship, but it may be the most instructive book we can find on the subject. And what we're gonna talk about today is not just worship, but we're gonna talk about renovating our heart. Over the next few weeks and for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this idea of soul renovation. I, I don't know if some of you were upstairs today, but there is a wall where there used to be a hall. Anybody see that this morning? All right, I received numerous questions. That's not permanent. That's temporary, all right? That's the block off when they do the construction. And they have already begun the process of removing pews and getting things set up and begun the process of renovating that sanctuary. Now, the truth is, they tell us that renovating the sanctuary and the kids' area and everything is going to take a few months. Don't you wish it was that easy with your body or with your soul? Because the truth is, Scripture teaches us that the moment we become a believer in Jesus Christ, we immediately are transformed and looked upon by Him as if we had never sinned. But it also teaches that the process of becoming who we will be is a lifelong learning process. And so our soul renovation takes time and effort and difficulty and good times. And so today we're going to look at what is the outflow or what flows out of a heart that has been changed radically by Christ. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. 
Revelation chapter 4 says this. It says, after this... Now, for those of you that hadn't read Revelation in a little while, that's after he had received a vision about what he was supposed to say to the churches. That was after he had said, these are what God is telling each of these churches to do and to be. And it's an amazing an account. He says, after that, I looked... And there in heaven was an open door. Now what we have to understand before we get into the meat of this vision of John, the the guy that wrote this book, is that God opened heaven for a moment to allow John to peer in and to see what heaven is like. For a moment, John gets a glimpse of that place that all of us are looking forward to going. For a moment, John gets a momentary glance into his eternal destiny and future. For a moment, the veil is torn back and John has a front row view to heaven. And the first voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven a throne was set. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne, and around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Let me give you a word of caution before we continue on. One of the easiest things to do when you get into Revelation is begin to ask all those strange questions. What do you mean there was a rainbow that looked like emerald? And who were those 24 guys? And what are they wearing? And where? Don't miss the forest looking at the trees. We're going to get to the big picture here in just a moment. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and thunder. Burning before the throne were seven fiery torches who were the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne was something like a sea of glass, similar to the crystal. In the middle and around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle. Here's what this passage instructs us about first. It tells us that if we are going to have a heart that is renovated and dedicated to the Lord, we're going to have to worship Him. And the first reason we worship Him is we worship Him because of who He is. We worship God for who He is. Now, I know that you say, okay, well, what does that passage tell us? I mean, there's, it seems strange there are rainbows and carnelian. I don't even know what carnelian is. And there's all kinds of, of robes and thrones and crowns and weird four creatures here. Here's what it tells us about God and the symbolism that is there. In the very basic terms, it tells us, first of all, that God is the center of all things. I read a quote this morning. I don't even remember where I read it. It was online somewhere. I was up reading the paper. and uh, Maybe it was on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere. But there was a quote that said, One day a lot of people are going to be disappointed when they wake up to discover that the center of the universe is not them. you know anybody like that? Don't point, please. All right? The world teaches us kind of that we're the center of everything, right? Maybe not you're the center, but I'm the center, and we live in a very selfish society. 
In fact, we are the most um, disconnected generation that has existed in the history of the earth. That's a bold statement, I know, but it's true according to researchers. And we believe more and more and more the things that really matter in life are those things that directly affect us. Sometimes it's hard to imagine that the world can function without us. We get sick or we get um, something happens to our family or we have to go away for a while and we come back and we're like, nothing really changed. Scripture teaches us that and we know We know this deep down. We're not the center of the universe. That the center of the universe is God. Now, what does this passage teach us about that? Well, it just tells us that God is on the throne in the center and surrounding Him are 24 other thrones. And so, it's the big throne in the middle and 24 other thrones all around. And the idea is that He is the center point of heaven. He is the central focus of heaven. That everything in heaven looks toward Him. That's who He is. And the reason for that is because He is perfect in who He is. I love the description here of the throne being there and lightning flying out from it. Anybody ever been in a lightning storm? Anybody ever seen one from a distance? You know, I really like watching thunderstorms at a distance. I really don't like being in the middle of one. Amen? Amen? Now, if you like being in the middle of the thunderstorm, you've got a little bit of a death wish, all right? You ever read any stories about those people that chase tornadoes? You ever read those stories? Anybody want to really be that person? You don't have to raise your hand, all right? You can be silent and you're crazy, all right? Why would anybody want to chase one? The power of nature, when it is in full force of Thunder and lightning is amazing. And it says that just around God in this picture, there is thunder and lightning. His strength is unknowable. His strength is perfect. He is completely strong and able. It tells us with these other creatures that they are all bowing down to Him. That He is is the greatest servant that has ever lived. He is the greatest king that has ever lived. He is the greatest rational being that has ever lived. He is the most majestic one that has ever lived. There is nobody that is anything close to being like our God. Our God is the most amazing, sophisticated, beautiful, loving lovely being that has or will ever exist. There is nothing like Him. No matter what you've seen in your life that you thought, man, I can't imagine it being more beautiful than that. God is. No matter what you've seen in your life that you think, I can't imagine it being more powerful than that. God is. And when these creatures are gathered around the throne, these strange looking creatures, and the 24 elders that I believe represent the entire population of God's people from the beginning of time until the end of time, as they are representative there, gathered around, we see Him in His absolute beauty and power and strength. And they begin to do the only thing you can do in the midst of that power and that beauty and that strength. They fall on their faces in worship. Verse 8 says this. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They covered with their eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the One seated on the throne, the One who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the One seated on the throne, worship the One who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne. In fact, that little phrase, verse 10, gives us three depictions of what it means to truly worship. First of all, they put themselves to the ground. What they are admitting there is they are not worthy to stand in the presence of Almighty God. They are not worthy to come close to being eye level around. They get as low as they possibly can. You get the sense that if they could dig a hole, they would dig a hole and crawl into it because they are not worthy to be at the same level. They worship Him. They sing praises to Him. They give their heart's attention to Him. They talk of His greatness, of His wonder, of His power, of His glory. And then it says they take everything that is good about them, this crown that is on their head, and they lay it at His feet saying, All that I have is Yours. I surrender completely. And they said, Our Lord and God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, because you have created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. When you come in contact with the Almighty God, the only appropriate response is unhindered and unabashed worship of Him. That's it. Now we, as American Christians, have done a disservice to the word worship when we claim that worship is when we come and sit in chairs and we sing songs and we talk a little bit and we hear a little bit and then we walk out as if nothing has ever happened. That is not worship. That's coming together and sitting around to people we like and talking to people and having a good time sometimes or thinking you're punching the clock, putting your hour's worth in or heaven forbid, hour and fifteen or hour and a half in and we move on. That's not worship. The reason that I believe God pulled back the curtain for a moment for John to be able to see what worship is like in heaven is so that we could get a glimpse of it in heaven so that we could apply that to what we're doing now. Because the same God that is in the center of heaven is the center of our lives. And for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, we have an unbelievable possibility of being in relationship with the most beautiful, strongest, powerful, perfect being that has ever existed. And so for us to claim that walking into a building on one day a week for an hour or an hour and a half at a time and lethargically singing and sitting and listening, considering what else is to come for the rest of the day, to claim that that is a worship service is a disservice to the word worship. Chapter 5 continues this thought of the reason that we worship. And it's not just that we worship God for who He is. And it's not a heart isn't just changed by realizing who God is. But the second thing is we see we worship because of what God has done. We worship God because of what He has done. Look at chapter 5. 
Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll. Now, let me just remind you of something here. Um, how many left-handed people do we have in, out there today? All right. Y'all, y'all know what the... Uh, raise, raise, y'all was kind of... Some of you weren't very proud of that. It was... I'm kind of... You know, raise them up. You know what the, the, the word for... In the ancient languages, you know what the word for left was? Left-handed? It was Sinister. Now, you apply that left-handed people only if appropriate, alright? They consider the left hand to be weak. They consider the left hand to be evil at times. No, you know, you don't hear a description, and he sat on the left hand. It's at the right hand. That's the strong hand. That's the powerful hand. And in the strong, powerful hand of God, he holds a scroll. Writing on the inside and the back, sealed with seven seals. And there was a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now, people ask, what is in the scroll? Well, the basic answer I can give you is, what's in the scroll is what comes in the rest of the book of Revelation. So from Revelation chapter 6 forward, that's what's in the scroll. But an understanding of that is, the scroll represents the fulfillment of God's plan, and God's plan coming into place. Verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and I cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look in it. The drama that John is seeing played out in heaven is a reminder of the desperate state in which we found ourselves without Jesus. Every once in a while, it's good for us to get a reminder of the desperate state of our eternal condition if Jesus hadn't come. Now I look out here today and I see nice-dressed people that are well-adjusted to society, I don't see anyone that I know has a terrible criminal record. If you do, don't raise your hand, all right? I don't see anybody here that I would think of as a despicable or vile person. But the truth is, Scripture teaches, without Jesus, every one of us is a despicable, vile person. And the truth is, if we were able to see past the facade of our nicely dressed selves and our clean shaven or nicely fixed hair, and we were able to see into the souls of one another, there would be deepness of darkness there that we would not be able to explain. And the picture John gets is of the desperation that would exist if Jesus hadn't come. Verse 5. Then one of the elders, one of the 24, said to me, Stop crying! Look! The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And when you read that, you think, Great! Let me see the lion! Bring out the lion. I want to see this powerful one that is going to take control of the scroll, that's going to take it from the right hand of God and do what needs to be done in order for God's plan to be fulfilled. 
How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia stuff? Or you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? My son is getting into that. He's reading the books now for uh, AR points at school. And when C.S. Lewis imagined a godlike figure for that series, he picked the picture of a lion. Because what communicates strength like a lion? Nothing, right? How many of you want to jump in a lion cage with a lion? Anybody? I don't. Alright? Lions, you know, there are times when... When um, we, we've been to the zoo and, and we've walked up and we went to the St. Louis Zoo this past summer. We went up to a ball game and went to the zoo. And at the St. Louis Zoo, you can get literally inches. I mean, I, I was as close as I am to Randy Brooks or closer to the penguins. I could reach my hand over and touch a penguin probably. I walked to another area. I was as close as I am to Steve Moore to the flamingos. But when I got to the lion part, do you realize they wouldn't let me get that close? They had a wall. They had a valley. Like a great Grand Canyon kind of thing. And then they were way over there. I couldn't get up close. Why? Because lions are so strong. Right? Fierce. So he says, listen, the lion of Judah's coming. And I know John's going, alright, let's see the lion. Verse 6. Then I saw one who looked like a slaughtered lamb. Are lambs scary? No. In that same zoo, they had a petting zoo. Do you know what they had in the petting zoo? Some lambs. Now think about this scene in heaven for a minute. You've got these these amazing creatures. I mean, you've got one flying around like an eagle. You've got a lion's face. You've got an ox. You've got these 24 elders. You've got these angels all around. And in the midst of that, it says, I saw one who looked like a slam, a lamb that had been slaughtered, standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. If you look at that scene, the least impressive of those is the lamb. But we're reminded that he had seven horns, which just means perfect strength. Seven eyes, perfect knowledge. And he came, this lamb who looked as if he had been slaughtered, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Now here's why we worship God for what He's done. When we were in a state of no return, when we had no hope, when we couldn't rescue ourselves, when we were despicable and vile, when our fate was determined to be eternal, separation from Him. God said that's not good enough. And He sent His Son, who was a lion of Judah, but became like a lamb led to slaughter. And Jesus Christ died for your sins and for mine. We worship God for who He is. And when we realize what He's done, the only appropriate response is falling on our face in unashamed worship before Him. Look at verse 8. When He took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed your people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a king and priest to our God and they will reign on earth. Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. You ever wonder if it's okay to say Amen in worship? They do in heaven, so it's all right here. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What you get is this sense that the scene in heaven is building. That there's worship happening. But what happens is the songs get shorter, but the crowds get bigger. And people are rushing to be able to be a part of what's happening. And when the scroll is finally revealed and Jesus is about to take His place as the One who will bring about the end of the world and that He will do it in God's way, in God's timing, for God's purposes, for the glory of God and the benefit of His people, it is like the crescendo of praise builds and builds and builds until it can't be contained anymore. Anybody watch football yesterday? Some of you, okay? There was a game on in the afternoon. We won't talk about the game last night because I think it is perfectly okay to not like the New England Patriots and be a believer in Jesus Christ, all right? That game yesterday was a great game. And, and I didn't get to see the first part of it. I was really hoping, by the way, I was going to get to talk about a great basketball game that happened earlier in the day, but about three minutes took, it, took care of that. But that game yesterday, it looked like San Francisco was done. I mean, they had a quarterback nobody really believed in. They can't pass the ball very well. They scored with too little time left. And if you watch the game, when that pass got thrown into the end zone, that stadium erupted. Anybody ever been in a stadium that just erupts like that? Anybody? Went to a Titans game. They played the Colts. And the Titans scored late in the game to take the lead. And it just erupted. You get the sense here, and I don't mean to minimize what's happening in heaven, but you get the sense here that what's happening is, is it's as if heaven. They've been looking everywhere. Who's going to take the scroll? We don't know who it is. Who's going to be the one that's going to come? And as the clock is ticking down, and as they're getting more and more desperate, this slaughtered lamb walks into the middle, and he takes the scroll. And it is as if you took what happened in San Francisco yesterday, and you multiplied it infinitely more than that. And suddenly... The crescendo of praise rises from that place and people go nuts. And it's not just the people. The angels said, we're not going to let you take advantage of this. We're coming too. You get the sense when you read this and you read it in the original language that what's happening here is people are competing to be better at worship than everybody else. Can I tell you what's not there? Can I tell you what's not at this worship service in heaven? There's nobody there with folded arms. Can I say what's not at this worship service in heaven? 
There's nobody there with closed mouths refusing to sing. Can I tell you what's not at this worship service in heaven? Nobody's checking a watch. Can I tell you what's not at this worship service in heaven? Nobody's thinking about the roast in the oven. Can I tell you what's not at this worship service in heaven? People wishing it was a little bit different. Because the only thing that matters is they are in the presence of God Almighty and in the presence of Jesus Christ who paid for our sins. That's all that matters. Can I just tell you that as believers in America, we are spoiled. You realize that, don't you? I mean, we are spoiled. We're sitting in a makeshift area to do worship today because we are renovating our very nice sanctuary to make it nicer and better to hear and better to see and make it more inviting. And I, as you know, I am all for that and believe this is God's will. And we are in this makeshift worship area and it is nicer than 95% of the places the over 1 billion believers will gather in today to worship Jesus Christ. You realize that, don't you? And there are people all over the world that right now are worried somebody's going to barge in and take them out and arrest them. There are many people on the other side of the world that are meeting right now at the same time we are. Not because that's the best time to meet, because it's dark. And they meet in the dark and they meet at one or two at night so that people won't come and arrest them. There are people that are on the other side of the hemisphere from us that are getting ready to worship in chairs. I know personally, because I've been there, that if you don't sit down in the chair right, it's not just that it's a little uncomfortable, it breaks. That's a little embarrassing when you're getting ready to preach and your chair breaks, I'll tell you. We're spoiled. And somehow, we've come to think that our worship depends on the comforts that we have instead of on the God who is and His Son, and what He did. There are five songs listed in this passage. None of them are the same, and I believe that God did not put the music notes in the Scripture for a reason. Because He wants us to adapt it and use it and make it personal to us. But the point is that these words are words of praise and honor and glory unto God. And the point of worship is to let what God has done in our hearts flow out of there. People that have a problem with worship don't have a problem with chairs or music or preaching. They have a problem with the fact that God has done something amazing in their lives. If you look throughout Scripture, what you see is people who are mature in their faith are people that can worship no matter where they are or what the circumstances are because of who God is and what He's done. Amen? In fact, and here's a statement I want to make and trace it through Scripture a little bit, a couple of things. Um, One of the things that is never praised in Scripture is complaint or criticism. It's nowhere praised in Scripture. In fact, if you read Scripture, what you see is that criticism and complaint are the native tongue of the spiritually immature. You think about the Old Testament. God... Almighty passes over the people of Israel, the children of God. He rescues them out of Egypt. He takes them into the promised land. And what do they immediately begin to do? Complain, right? Criticize, complain. 
Moses, why don't you bring us out here? We're all going to die out here. They can't do anything. Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. It was so good there. I mean, we didn't get paid anything and we were literally slaves and we didn't eat much, but it was good there. You get into the prophets and God looks down at the prophets and He says, listen, these people come to Me and they praise Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. They're criticizing each other. They're complaining. They're talking about They're taking advantage of other people. You get to the New Testament and you have Jesus teaching and there's a group of people that are consistently complaining and criticizing about Jesus and we find out that even though they think they are the most spiritually mature people around, what do they find? They are immature. The Pharisees, right? In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, and this isn't on the U version, if you're using the U version app, turn back to Matthew chapter 15 for just a minute. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus, Jesus is teaching in this place, and in fact, he's just teaching from that, from that passage that I quoted from the prophets. It says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is from, far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Verse 10. Summoning the crowd, he said to them, Listen and understand. Not just hear, but listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. Look at verse 12. I think it's an interesting little verse. Then the disciples came and said, Jesus, come here. The Pharisees didn't like what you said. Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard you say what you said? I'm not trying to start anything. I just want you to be aware, Jesus. Pharisees didn't like that. Verse 13. Every plant that my Heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. I want to tell you something. That's about as nice as you can say, those people aren't followers of my dad. What he says there is they think they're safe, they think they're saved, they think they're okay, but their attitudes and their heart prove that they're not. Leave them alone. They are blind gods. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter says, can you explain that to us? Now, this is one of those times when I think the disciples should have gotten it a little easier. Amen? I say that until I realize that we often don't get it either. Are you still lacking in understanding? He says, don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? In other words, food doesn't make you unclean. A radical statement to those people. If Jesus would have said that directly to the Pharisees, they would have claimed He had just disavowed every law of God that had been written. What do you mean it doesn't matter what we put in our mouth? That's exactly what matters. Remember Moses? Remember the commandments? Remember the Deuteronomy? Remember Leviticus? You remember all that? He says, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And this defiles a man. Now he gives a list of things there. Evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. The point Jesus is making is what problems we have often come from the inside and they manifest themselves or they flow out of the way that we speak and talk and act and live. In Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn it there, but you can write this down. Jesus tells them to not... to not speak in rotten talk. In fact, He says... or this is... Paul speaking to the Ephesians. He says, No rotten talk should come from your mouth, 
And only what is good for building up of someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the God's Holy Spirit. There's lots of questions about what that means. But the idea there is that speaking, something that comes out of our mouth, something that comes from our heart, can grieve the Holy Spirit. In fact, verse 31 says, bitterness, anger, wrath, insult, slander must be removed from you along with the wickedness. Turn back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Here's the point of all that. Scripture never shines a positive light in any way on people who are critical and complaining. And they say it's because it comes from an ungrateful heart who doesn't realize what God has done. Well, if that's the native tongue of the spiritually immature, what's the native tongue of the spiritually mature? It's worship and encouragement. What we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is that when you're confronted with God Almighty Himself, the only appropriate response is unashamed, unfiltered worship before Him. And I just wonder, what's your heart condition? What's the condition of your spiritual heart? Ask yourself the question this week in a real way. What are the words that come out of my mouth? What are the preponderance of them? Does that mean we won't occasionally mess up or we won't say something that tears someone down or we won't be critical or complaining? No, we're not perfect people. But what is the preponderance? What's the most that comes out of my mouth? What's the normal conversation? When I'm confronted with something that I don't like, what's my first reaction? Is it to criticize and to complain or is it to seek the Lord in the midst of it? Revelation chapter 4 and 5 pulls back the veil just for a moment to say if your heart is where it ought to be, then the natural part of your life ought to be praise and worship unto the Lord. Now, the truth is, I'm not talking about an hour on Sunday morning. That is, if, if the only worship in my life was this hour, I would be painfully woeful in my worship. This isn't it. That it ought to be a daily Meeting with God. Because of who He is and what He's done. 